Beautiful Wednesday here on the East Coast, 1 o'clock Eastern Time. You see them both, Carter Braxenworth, who just looks extraordinarily sexy in that green. Dan Nathan doing his best Johnny Cash on this Wednesday. Uh, I'm G. Swizz. I am just sort of, um, I'm emboldened. I'm happy. My Yankees won last night. Workmanlike effort, 4-1 victory against the Guardians in the Bronx. But what I was really excited about, the Rangers playing Tampa Bay Lightning at home, 3-1, dominated the game. The score could have been 6-1, Dan, as you know. But that's not why we're here. We're here to do market call. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Tom Sosnoff, founder of Tasty Trade. Today's episode, Dan, brought to you by our presenting sponsors, FactSet, financial data and analytics that are powered by tomorrow. Tasty Trade, empowering the individual investor through content, technology, and know-how. And of course, I want to thank our production partners. We are powered by Open Exchange. Sorry that I missed it yesterday. Dan, I will tell you, though, yeah. I was in an event, New Jersey Battered Women's Shelter event yesterday. I've done it now the last couple of years, trying to raise money for a good cause. I apologize. I thought my timing was bad because I thought I'd be able to make market call. Clearly, I didn't. How are you, Dan? Well, I'm doing well. And, you know, we had L.Y. from SoFi join us. Wait, what and was she that? Filled, yeah, you heard what I did there, guy. And, and it's going to be a thing here. But, um, you know, one thing I just want to say this to all of our listeners, all of our viewers. Guy Adami is one of the most generous people with his with, with your time, but also just kind of lending whatever you think you can do with that brand that you've built with, what, 27 years on CNBC. There's a lot of people that reach out to you to help them gain awareness for their causes. And you always say, yes, you are, as our people say, a mensch guy. Yes. Can't All spell right. it, but I am one. And look Carter, at Carter, man. Man, Carl, oh, man. He's ready to do it. Carter Braxton Worth, thank you. You had to just kind of sit with us for those two minutes of, of whatever good. you want to. Nonsense. What, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, let's talk about this stock market here. It really feels like it's kind of holding on for dear life. Carter, on Monday on Market Call, you went through a lot of charts in the S&P 500. And I think the one four-letter word you used after all of them was down. Um, okay, so here we are. We're kind of contending with that from June. We're down six and a quarter percent from a week ago, from a week ago. Um, what's your take here? Because this morning, you know, we had this PPI data. It was a little hot, right? We have CPI tomorrow morning. Does it feel like we're setting up for a sort of binary sort of near-term setup? And when I say binary, I don't mean crash, but I mean really the next leg of this move after this data. Right. So if you just were to flip the chart upside down and think about how a stock or a currency or commodity mm -hmm. index breaks out. When you return to a former high, before you exceed it, you contend with it. You back and fill and then ultimately, more often than not, break out. Well, the same thing is the reciprocal, right? So we, we have the a June low. You have a six-month plunge, essentially, right, with sequencing. Jan 4 high, June 15 low. And then you get this powerful counter trend, exactly eight weeks, June 15, August 16. And then down we go again, and we're back where we were in the middle of June. We're now the middle of October. So the question is, any talk of being oversold is just not, it's a non-starter. If you haven't gone lower in four months, you can't be oversold. So that's out. The question is, is this normal sequencing? Are we backing and filling before going lower? That's, that's my thinking. Now, I think there's some, and uh, okay, maybe so. I think we're going to bounce here. Uh, but that's not the action at the individual stock level, and therefore it's not likely to be the action at the aggregate level. 
I have a question for you, Carter. You did this. You mentioned um, if you flip these charts upside down, and we actually did it as an exercise. It's got to be late last year, early this year. Timing doesn't matter. But when you see it through that lens, when you do flip this upside down, for some reason your brain reacts much differently. And is that some sort of inherent bias that we're not even aware of that if we look at a chart that's going higher, it looks just so much better as a trade or as an, as an opportunity than a chart that's going lower? Well, right, because they, in principle, they should be the equal and opposite thing, right? So that if we can see positivity in a stock that looks as though it's going to break out, then we should see equal mm -hmm. amount of negativity in stock that's going to break down. However, it's the human condition. You think, well, it's already down so much, it's probably not going to break down. But the one that's about to break out, you're like, hey, this hasn't gone anywhere in three, four months. This is where it can finally get going again. And so that, that is the... That is the optical trick that the mind plays. But in principle, they are the equal and opposite thing. And the conclusions or the resolutions are likely to be more often than not the equal and opposite. Yeah. And, and some of these other inputs, just look on a day like today where we see the, you know, the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield at 3.93. We see the U.S. dollar uh, index at 113 and a half. <clears throat> just a shade off of its highs that it's just made over the last few weeks. And when I say highs, I mean like, you know, like decade plus highs, right? So we're just seeing, you know, crude oil, you know, back here um, above 90. You're, you're seeing, you know, an S&P, like we said, holding on for dear life with some data that a lot of people are focused on um, tomorrow morning. And if you look at the PPI and you're going to extrapolate that, you know, a hotter reading there. You know, Carter, when we look at this five-year chart, is there any other way to suggest that there is an air pocket back to those pre-pandemic highs? I know we've been charting this for a while here, but like 3,400 seems like a foregone conclusion at this point. Right. I mean, you know, there is there is congestion there, which for about three, four months between the July and October period, which you can see. So uh, not necessarily an air pocket, but I, I know what you're driving at, which is it can quickly drop. And uh, I guess the, if you if you didn't know what this was, and that's always the, the perfect litmus test. If you just shown this chart, it didn't say S&P. It could be a commodity. It could yeah. be an individual stock. What about that chart would make you say, I got I to get myself some of this. I got to buy some of this. <laughs> Nothing. Obviously, yeah. Dan, our relationship with FactSet is great. And, you know, we're utilizing more and more of their work. And I, this, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, it really is true when you look at this. And this is obviously a snapshot of what's going on. And I think it really helps just to sort of crystallize and I guess sort of, I don't know, make it more apparent as to really what's going on. Yeah. Not only below the surface, but right in front of your face. Yeah. A couple of things that stick out to me when we look at the sector level here, I see utilities down to more than 2%. Um, again, we just talked about where yields were. And then the flip side of that is transport's best performing sector um, in the S&P almost feels like a dead cat bounce being helped a little bit, I think, by, you know, some of the moves we're seeing, let's say in the cruises or, um, you know, FedEx is finally has an update. The airlines are green here. Maybe that's it. But but here's one name, Guy, I wanted to kind of get your take on. Look at the biggest mover in the S&P 500, Moderna. Mm -hmm. um, stock's up, you know, 12, 13% on the day. Some good news as it relates to a partnership on a cancer drug. And I know a lot of people were focused on the, uh, you know, the COVID vaccines. You've been saying this, and I feel like 
for a better part of the summer into the fall, that kind of 120-ish level, which we're above right now, was a level that you thought it might be able to get to and kind of find some support. Well, it's been banging around in and around 115, 125 for months and months here. That sort of news, what, what is it kind of, does it, does it really help the story or is it a bit of a short squeeze on the near term? No, I think it I think it definitely helps the story. I I don't necessarily know if it's a short squeeze or not. And I'm really interested to hear Carter's take. But you know, I look at that, excuse me, 150-day moving average that is now flattening out for the first time in a long time. It's not turning up yet. Um, but obviously I would think the next thing it does is to start turn higher. So if we can trade through that moving, just my opinion again, and I want to hear Carter's thoughts. You know, this is a stock that could get back to the levels we saw, I want to say, in mid-August or so. So, um, C- Carter, your thoughts on this, but am I looking at this chart correctly? Yeah, I mean, basically, Moderna has continued to not go lower, right? It's not that it's gone higher, mm-hmm. right? And today's action further confirms that. The question really is, is this level and the authority of that green line is not just the here and now. Uh, that level has a lot of authority going back um, more than two years. And uh, what we do know is that this is the poster child for literally COVID. So forget about DocuSign and Zoom and Peloton. This is the this is ground zero. Uh, this is a company that never made any money and lost money every year. And then it made $28 a share in, in 2021. And guess what's projected two years from now to make only four. Mm-hmm. So lose money, make a fortune, 28 bucks a share. And analysts, a lot of them that cover it, a lot of them with medical backgrounds, say that they will earn $4, down from 28. So is it bearish, is it bullish, is it cheap, is it expensive? What well, we do know, and you can see it here on the green line, there's a lot of authority at the 120 level. It is bounced yet again. But I don't think it changes the inexorable look of that long-term pattern. A great run-up, an equally epic collapse, but the collapse doesn't look as though it's over. So pair of twos right here. I, I, so. I totally get it. I mean, I, I look at this and say the way I would trade it if I were to trade it, wait for a breakout above the moving average. Hopefully it won't be a false breakout. You know, hopefully you get some more positive news. That moving average starts to trend higher and maybe you'll catch a move to, again to the highs we saw over the summer. But, you know, I, I think Carter's point about this sort of being a pair of twos here, given the fundamentals, uh, we're sort of swapping hats here. It makes a little bit of sense, Dan. Yeah, when we talk about fundamentals, we got to start thinking about earnings. We're going to hit a bunch of them right now. But uh, this morning, Pepsi uh, reported, Mm -hmm. you know, the stock is having a heck of a day. And it's really interesting when we think about consumer staples, we think about defensive sort of stocks, the stocks that have pricing power, companies that have pricing power here. Pepsi is certainly one of them. And they keep demonstrating this. It's performed well better uh, than than many of its peers, certainly better than the market. It's only down two and a half percent of the year uh, with today's bounce here. Guy, thoughts on on their ability to pass through higher input costs, but also, you know, again, you know, we're, we're in, some consumer staple companies are not having this sort of success in doing that. No, they're obviously, and they've been able to do it. And I think they raised prices by about 17%, which is, look, I mean, this is not a Fed bashing show, but just think about that for a second. You know, they were able to raise prices by 17%. So it stands to reason in their world you know, they're looking at 17% or so inflation. So just keep that in mind as you start to hear some of the numbers that come out. But obviously, they do a great job of it. And to your point, you know, this is a stock that's held in there relatively well. We have this sort of long term, obviously, that was violated like everything else in the spring, early spring of 2020. 
but you have a pretty long-term chart that's intact and we're right here at the moving average carter i look at this and say you know we've held that uptrend line a number of times thoughts here on pepsi yeah i mean i for me it's kind of a pair of twos more than anything else if you look at the sort of the the up and close chart the one before this one mm-hmm. it's a stock that like again if you didn't know what it was and someone said i gotta show you this one and you go, really okay uh What's the thesis? You're like it's just vacillating across the screen. It has no character. Now the longer term chart, and of course that's uh, that's something different. It's been ascending, but um, okay. I, I would just say, look, it's it's bond like to some extent. I'm sure the yield is a little bit better than the S and P, and it, its relative performance is a lot better than the S and P, given the risks that we've already seen and the perspective risks ahead. Yeah. All right. Let's look at uh, bank stocks. They're going to be reporting um, a bunch of them on on Friday before Mm -hmm. the opening. Um, You know, JP Morgan, the big kahuna there. That's the one we're most focused on. And it's really astounding. Yesterday at its lows, it was really flirting with that $100 level. We thought it would kind of fill in that gap back to November 2020, um, which was around 105 or so. And it shot through that. Finding a little support here. I mean, again, it's kind of a treacherous setup when you think about, you know, selling off precipitously into an event. You kind of have to start thinking about, well, sentiment's gone one way. We've been talking about JP Morgan, I think, all year long, just the relative underperformance to some of its large money center peers, some of the um, you know largest names in the market relative to just the indices in and of itself down you know 30 plus percent right now. Um, Carter, you've done a lot of work on the charts here. Um, just to kind of give us a sense of what you're seeing. And if the banks led to the downside early in this year, are they likely to signal when we're coming out of this malaise? Right. So this is in many ways, obviously, well, it's not the biggest sector in the market. Financials are the most important, right? In the sense that banks, big banks, they used to call money center banks, are the transmission mechanism for the economy, the lifeblood of the economy. And they're the most cyclical of all in the sense that, you know, you, you can lose money operating an industrial company like a Ford or a Caterpillar, but you can lose money at the point of going out of business when you're lending money. And that's the problem with banks. And so it's often, and you know this, Citibank trades it, 0.4 book, mm-hmm. whereas J.P. Morgan probably trades at 1.2 or 1.3 book. Uh, in aggregate, I don't like the space. I don't like financials or, let's say, banks in general. And I think they are going to work lower. Um, we did a piece on that uh, at Worth Charting uh, today or last night, of course. And uh, maybe we could look at, I mean, just for fun, look at these very sort of straightforward um, stats. There are 24 stocks in the KBW Bank Index. And Look at that. The market kept 1.26 trillion mm-hmm. versus Google at 1.27. And let's just say you had a would you rather? <laughs> would Ooh. you rather have Google at whatever P is or own all these banks that have, I mean, Google's not going to show up one day and tell you, oh, we got these uh, loan losses we got to take care of. Anyway, here, here are all the banks. Uh, these are the ones in the index. And I think we've got some charts and we can look at them. Let's look at them because you like making these comparisons. And I think, again, when you speak about this, it's hard to sort of visualize, but when you literally see it on a piece of paper the way you've outlined it, it makes a lot more sense. So two panel, um, top BKX index, bottom relative performance of the S&P. So the two pink lines, horizontal dotted pink lines are meant to tell a story, right? We know that the, the BKX index, uh, which was sort of peaking in 2018, dropped to its COVID low and then makes a new high, it breaks out above that horizontal 
dashed pink line. But look at the relative performance. It never could quite deliver anything other than negative alpha, mm -hmm. underperformance. Uh, not, not good. There's some other names. Obviously, you want to look at some of the individual names because you did very similar. And again, I think it's just it's fascinating to look at because now you're saying directionally, this is what you think might start to happen. Right. So PNC, it's look how look how prototypical it is. It's a bullish to bearish reversal. Notice how the stock tracks the 150 day moving average perfectly, uh, bouncing and failing against that line. Top is PNC, the shares that are publicly traded. It looks like it's going lower. But look at the relative performance to um, the market. Uh, looks like it's going higher. Wells, it's the same thing. Look at that relative. And then finally, I think we have City here. Mm -hmm. Look at that. City's not only down, but look at its relative performance. Now one could say, but that's the cheapest one. Probably, but they also maybe have branches in Tehran they're closing or in Moscow. Who the, who the heck knows? Or maybe they got a problem called the strong dollar is one of the most international banks. Either way, the relative, they're all, to me, headed lower, but there's relative differences that make. Yeah. And, and, and Carter, I appreciate all of that. And again, we talked about from a sentiment standpoint and just how banks have been leading to the downside. If you think of all of the things that we've been most focused on from a macro level, and a lot of them we don't understand. I mean, like, again, when I say we, you know, some of you may understand it better, but, you know, that whole idea of a, a liability driven investment in LDI, that's new acronym to my um, investment kind of, uh, you, you know what I mean? Like tool toolbox, if you think about it. And all of a sudden now we're worried about what the bank of of England might do to kind of bail out their pension funds because of these levered, you know, uh, you know, like, again, you know, this reminds me of periods like in 2007, when we first start thinking about what is a CLO, Googling that, you know, we're, we're at a weird spot in this market cycle and a lot of major um, risk assets are going and moving um, in, with a level of, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, violence that, that we just have not seen in a very long time. So when I think about Bank stocks, you might get a bounce here, but until there's some sort of all clear about the kind of the, the global economy, the pace of rate hikes, the pace of the, the, the strength of the dollar, how commodities shake out, I just don't know how these stocks can work. work. And especially when you think about if the Fed is finally waiting for unemployment here in the U.S. to tick up, I just don't think that's going to be great for a lot of these money center blanks that depend a, a great deal um, on lending. So that's my little two cents there. Hey, real quickly, Carter, I wanted to get your um, your thoughts on this. You know, on Market Call a few weeks ago, it was prior to Nike's earnings. Uh, the stock was in the high 90s. I said it was going to buy a little bit. I also said that I was very confident that it would probably be buying some with an eight handle after earnings. The whole idea was the dollar cost average. And I did that fairly well, uh, despite a very miserable quarter and guide. The stock got killed. It went as low as 82. Believe it or not, I started buying at 98. I got my average to uh, somewhere below 84. Sold some stock um, above 90 just last week here. I'm not feeling great about this when I look at this chart and you were telling me that you just didn't like it here. Look at that COVID low. Look at the uptrend that I drew from late 2017. Quickly, thoughts on Nike here. Um, and, and really, do you think it holds that uptrend if it gets down there towards the mid 70s? And then I really want to get your thoughts on Disney because it feels like it's shaping up fairly similar. Yeah, I don't like Nike, right? I mean, and again, this is the question of first you get the multiple contraction. Clearly, the PE has dropped with the stock dropping. And then the, the earnings trouble comes. And we've already seen a bit of that. 
uh, but in principle. As to the trend line, just to be fair, you've connected two points, and right, you can connect any two points. Um, does it go down to that green line, which would then be three touches? Why not? Fair enough. All right. And then the last one here, just Disney. Take a look at this one. We know that they're not going to report for a little bit here, but, you know, the stock had that huge bounce um, from June and then it was kind of um, punctuated by, uh, a, you know, a result in earnings and guidance that um, investors obviously kind of liked. And it's given mostly all of that move back here. Just curious if you want to look at that kind of one year and then the longer term and just give us a sense of what you see there. Yeah, in the sense that we see that the sequencing is very similar, if not identical, to the general market. It has a low in in June or July, depending on which stock. It rallies strongly uh, to the August high and then it's given it all back. So for every stock that has done this, there's another that's already undercut its prior low. The presumption is that Disney will do the same. Carter, you are the man. As you folks know, Dan has been playing hurt the entire week. That voice just continues to deteriorate. But he's starting to sound a little bit like Demi Moore in uh, About Last Night, which, by the way, love that movie. So there's some, I guess there's some good things coming out of this, Dan. So I'm going to say 5000 to you. Carter, I'm going to say adios to you. Adios. Please check out worthcharting.com. Carter, I don't know if you heard the other day, but you're getting shout-outs from people all across not only the United States, but people that I know in Europe and other places as well. They love your work, and they've done extraordinarily well. So definitely check out Worth Charting. Talk to both you guys later. Time now to bring in Tom Sosnoff. I'm sure, Tom, you've heard some of the things we've been saying. And I want to talk to you, Tom, real quick, because you think about the environment that we find ourselves in. And you know, this, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is like a target-rich environment for you. But Talk to me about you wake up in the morning. I'm just curious, and I'd love to have this conversation. What is the first thing you're looking at to try to figure out what the F is going on in the world? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a futures junkie. Yeah. So I sit probably, I don't know. I don't even, can't even tell you how many times I wake up during the night, but I, I watch the S&Ps. I watch the, you know, I mean, the S&P uh, future the ES is my primary. I don't really watch anything else. I'm not a news junkie or anything like that. So um, I pretty much just watch the S&Ps around the clock. And lately, I've been watching bonds more than I usually do. But mm -hmm. um, I would say S&Ps primarily. Let's talk about bonds real quick. This is something we've talked about since you started with us now. And we got to be a few months into this thing. And it's great having you. But historically, you know, bond volatility is not a thing. There is no volatility in the bond market. So in your world, you're not really being rewarded for taking the commensurate risk associated with selling volatility. But listen, not only over the last year or so, but clearly over the last couple of months, uh, bond volatility is playing to your strengths. And here's an opportunity to take advantage of something that historically would probably be a few standard deviations away. So can you speak to that and how you're viewing this window in time and, and how long it's going to last. Well, this this heightened period of volatility in bonds has already lasted longer than most of them over the last decade. But we're at, um, um, I think right now, let me tell you, I, actually, I can tell you exactly. I wanted to say we're about somewhere around 15 or 16% in the long bond, which is about 50% over. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you an exact number. We're actually... Um, in November, we're trading right now in bonds at about 18%. So we're almost at, um, you know, 70% over kind of long-term kind of averages in, in the in the long bond. Um, 
So I would say that you're getting paid a very rich premium um, in the bond market. Uh, and you're getting paid a rich pre- for selling premium, of course. Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, for people that don't trade bonds, there are no really good. There's one equity product called TLT, which mm-hmm. basically tracks the 30 year, um, uh, the 20 to 30 year basket. But it's it's a little bit, it's under $100 now, but it's it's still rich relative in the sense that it requires a lot of capital for an, for an eight, you know, 17, 18% vol instrument. But if you want to trade bonds, um, you can trade the ZBs, which are the long bond, or you can trade the ZNs, which are the notes, which have about half the um, half the risk, half the volatility of the long bond. Both of those are the two most liquid products in the world. They're multi, multi, multi-trillion dollar assets, and they trade in one tick wide liquidity. So um, the amount of premium in there today is just ginormous compared to where it really is. And the bond risk, when volatility is high in bonds, your risk in directional bond positions is very low. Your risk in premiums low and your risk in directions low, because from a directional standpoint, you're going to get about two times the expected, the two times the normal expected move. And from a volatility standpoint, you have virtually no outlier risk. You know, you have some, but it's it's a fraction of what it normally is in low volatility. So if you eliminate outlier risk and you can bet on either direction, the bond market, whether it's the whether it's the notes or the bonds, is an incredible play right now. And it's it, for us, it's one of our largest positions by far. No question, but let me push back and say this. In this environment, the the focus you have to have in normal times is exquisite, right? You have to be locked in. In these heightened times, you know, given the headline risk, you know, we're seeing it, we see it almost on a daily basis now, the headline risk in in terms of what's going on with the Bank of England and other central banks. Is there intervention from the Bank of Japan? Bank of China, what are they? There's so many different inputs here that really forces you to be just basically staring at a screen all day. Is that accurate in today's times? There, there's two sides to it. If you're a very active trader, of course it's accurate because it's always accurate. But the reality, and this is the this is the one of the really confusing things for people that are either new to the markets or that haven't actively traded over the years. The risk, your your the risk of your portfolio volatility and your your fat tails risk in a highly in a in a market that has very high implied volatility and and remember what implied volatility is it's just expected move mm-hmm. so in a market where the expected move is 50% 70% or 100% greater than it normally is your fat tail um risk is a fraction of what it is in low volatility so the thing that most people get confused about when it comes to trading actively in in markets that are very volatile like we have right now is that your outlier risk is almost non-existent. It, it's obviously it's still there, but it's minuscule. There's been very few instances over the years where people have been burnt on outlier risk in really, really period in high periods of really, really high implied volatility. Almost 98% of your outlier risk comes in periods of low volatility. So it's exactly the opposite of what you would think risk reward wise. Well, it makes that makes perfect sense to me in the way you explain it exactly right. And you know, I think, again, we've had this conversation. Um, this is not a VIX conversation. I want to preface that. But I'll yeah, say sure. this. Yeah. I think one of the reasons, again, my opinion, Tom, that the volatility index or whatever you look at has not spiked to levels that theoretically it should be in this environment is because I think a lot of people set up for moves like this November, December, January of last year when the Fed pivoted. So what you're saying basically is the outlier risk in low vol periods is there because 
typically things come out of nowhere and that's where you get that outlier risk this didn't come out of nowhere is that somewhat accurate that's perfectly accurate i mean that that that's exactly what we're facing right now is it's not that what's happening is known it's just that the expectations are such you know you you um it's it's not a function of crashing either what it really is is just you know where's the velocity of the move where's the magnitude of the move going to come from and it comes from significantly in in the case of of the equity markets it comes from higher prices and lower volatility um and what you're also seeing is a is a much more sophisticated retail customer base mm -hmm. um 20 and 30 years ago the customer base in markets like this would be doing nothing but buying puts in this market all retail customers are doing is selling puts and so we have a completely different set of uh, we have a very different marketplace from a dynamic standpoint on where the risks are. Retail customers for the last month have been doing nothing but selling puts. And I'm telling you, you know, the crazy thing, guy, is that if we were talking about, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, every single customer would be buying, you know, SPX puts right now and, and right. or, you know, buying or selling index futures. They're doing the exact opposite here. And they're selling equity puts across the board. It's one of the biggest put selling, you know, um, we're, we're witnessing it. And I think it's because retail customers are very smart right now. And I think the only people that are, that are really getting hurt in this market um, across the board are, are institutions and, um, you know, and funds that have basically a straight long bias. Let's talk about this. This is really fascinating because, again, it's important if there's new audience members or just to sort of hammer home points that we've made. When you're doing this, and hopefully for most retail traders and, and as sophisticated as they've become, they're not doing it because they want to be put Apple at a certain price or they want to be put Microsoft or they want to be put the whatever the hell you're selling. To, sure. They're doing it is basically... Uh, just trading opportunities. Yeah, of course. Is, is that is that accurate? Yeah. There, there's not a single put seller in the world that actually wants to buy stock. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you will hear people justify. Well, I'd be happy to buy. You know, like right. stocks trading for 200, they'll sell the 150 puts. I go, I'm happy to buy the stock at 150. No, you're not. Um, nobody wants to buy that, and so nobody, and myself included, because I'm a put seller. Um, nobody wants to buy stock when you sell puts, but. You know, you you realize it's a possibility, but it's not what you want to do. That Let's, said, um, there is no better trade in the world than to take advantage of put skew, which means puts are priced very rich relative to calls. And there's no better trade in the world uh, from a high probability standpoint than selling an out of the money put. Their market has positive drift. The market has incredibly rich put premium. The market adjusts skew for downside velocity. And therefore, you know, it's your highest probability trade on the board. And it has been that way for, you know, 45 years. So let me give you through a theoretical here. So, sure. you, and again, it, the, the instrument doesn't matter. The security no. doesn't matter. It's the math and it's sort of the discipline behind it. So let's say you sell a put for four and it goes to two. My instinct is I take half of it off effectively and then I'm in the trade for free. But you got to do something. Tom, one of the things I tell people all the time is, trade the stock or trade the trade the instrument don't let the instrument trade you does that make sense yes so i i will give you a little bit of me mechanical rules of thumb that are we've optimized this with all the, tasty trade is a think tank and it's a think tank for options and derivatives trading and one of the things that we do is we 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 create research to optimize trade mechanics 
And to use the example you just gave, mm-hmm. if you sell something at $4 and it goes to $2, you take it off. Um, the the per, the optimal spot to cover a trade, any kind of trade, a short call, a short put, a short iron condor, a short whatever, a long whatever, is at 50% of max profit. There is no better part of the of the either the decay curve or the profit curve than 50% of max profit. And don't even, don't overthink it. Don't say like, oh, I'm going to take 25% or 50% or whatever. Of course you can, but it's not necessary. Just take the trade off and move on to the next trade. There's mm-hmm. also the concept of, if you want to eliminate portfolio risk, just manage your trades way before expiration. Ideally, you'd like to manage them two, three, four weeks before expiration, because what happens in that case is you're essentially eliminating all of your outlier risk by managing early, regardless of the season, regardless of the market conditions, regardless of anything else. You put a trade on, you manage it earlier, early, you essentially reduce the outlier risk. You're essentially taking your gamma risk off the table. And that is one of the keys to being a successful active trader using all products. Let me so, so let me sort of hammer this home again. What you're saying is, and I, I happen to adhere to this, you know, we could dance around the edges, take half of it off, take the whole thing off. Sure. That's sort of a style thing. But what you're not saying is, you're not selling something at four saying, I know this is going to zero. I mean, that really doesn't come into the equation at all. It, it doesn't come in one bit. In fact, what we've built is some very cool technology, um, very cool modeling that's built into our technology that essentially when you put on a trade, like on, on Tasty's platform, when you put on a trade guy, it will tell you based on Monte Carlo simulations, mm-hmm. we run thousands of them on every single trade. It will tell you what your statistical chances of achieving 50% of max profit. So if you sell an option, let's just say you sell a put at $4, we will tell you before you push the button to sell that put at $4, what your statistical chances of making $2 on that trade mm-hmm. based on thousands of um, thousands of simulated trades all done instantaneously on a high frequency platform. So before you make that trade, you'll you'll know that if you're selling something at $4 and it's an out of the money put, you probably have a 77% probability of making $2 on the trade. Which is, now you think about what you just said. So you gave statistical probabilities and you've basically gamed this out using historical data. The mistake people make, and I'm not suggesting it's tasty clients or your community, but in, in the aggregate, Mm-hmm. emotion comes into it immediately. Something's going their way is I got this. Not only am I going to yeah. pay for my kid's school, I'm going to buy another freaking house. And once you let emotion enter the equation, I think you've screwed yourself. Maybe you'll be right a couple of times, but over time, emotion is the killer in this thing because it takes away the discipline. Yeah. I mean, the way to eliminate emotion is, is you make, an, you, you are active enough. The mistake that most people make, it's not the emotion thing is almost unavoidable in many cases, but what makes what what leads to successful trading and the easiest way to eliminate them at that emotion is a to stay small and b to make enough trades. Like the mistake that a lot of active traders or passive traders make is that they just don't make enough trades. And I know it's going to sound, hey Tom, that's really self-serving, but it's not. There's statistical crazy amounts of statistical evidence. And it's essentially, think of it as a law of large numbers game. The more times you do something, the better you get at it, the less emotional you get at it, and the more disciplined you are to the mechanics. And that's all there is to it. No, it's, listen, it's I adhere to that. that. I, I totally understand that, by the way, and it's completely counterintuitive and it flies in yes. the face of what you've heard for years. But 
if you think about the logic behind it, it makes sense. Let's talk quickly about a couple things. Sure. Crude oil obviously has been front and center in terms of what you've been looking at with a couple of other things. Obviously, we saw the OPEC news. We saw that initial one, two, whatever day spike. But, you know, it's sort of coming back to levels. And you're, and you're saying to yourself, your bias has been lower. Does that sort of does that cement your thought process and in terms when you see something like that, you see an event that should have been gone higher on, it does go higher, then it does the back and fill. Are you saying to yourself, I got this one now. I know all the no. things I've thought are right, and this is going to sort of get to the levels that I thought. Or is it just more of what we talked about earlier? No, it's more of what we talked about earlier. I mean, I am bearish in crude oil, and it did have an unbelievable run from you know high seventies to to low nineties, and now it's backed off. You know, about probably about six. It was over ninety three. It's eighty seven mm-hmm. now, so it's backed off about six bucks, but it's still high in my opinion. But that's that's that doesn't matter to me. To me, crude is remains as a very attractive short premium play. I don't think it's the most attractive trade on the board. Like when you look at the futures markets now, I think the US dollar, I think the bond market, the US dollar and the equity markets are more attractive than crude oil from an oppor- from an opportunistic standpoint. So I like those markets better, but all things considered crude's up there because A it is an amazing the product has amazing liquidity and um B you know, it's still in play. It's just it's very much a one trick pony. So I think crude oil needs to be part of every portfolio, every active portfolio. But I don't think it's it's a um, for me it's not a it's 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 not a focal point. Right, totally get it. Now let's talk about something that has been sort of lower left, upper right. To quote the great Dennis Garman, that's been the U.S. dollar. Something obviously you trade actively. This is one of those things, and I'll ask the question again, sort of knowing what the answer is going to be. But I'm curious. This to me is one of those generational moments in US dollar where yep. yeah you're going to have moves to the downside along the way but the trend and I and I don't use this term but the trend is your friend in this case and I don't know what's going to derail it something will but right now it shows no signs of stopping I haven't heard a Dennis Gartman reference in a while and um uh that's that's funny I did I think I did one of the last shows with him live. Um, I forgot where we were. Maybe we're in Vegas or something. And uh, it's funny because I didn't really know the guy. And he's a wealth of knowledge. Um, really interesting character to talk about the stock market with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a good time um, doing a live event with him once um, or a couple times. But um, I think that I'm going to um, make say you're spot on. I think this call, this is a... This is a generational trade right now. This is a once in a decade trade that is setting up in the US dollar. It has not paid anybody. The whole entire street has gotten run over. Every single trader in America that's an active trader that's that even at one point was long dollars is now short dollars. The entire world is on the um is on the short side of dollars. Um, you know, they're they're who's ever long it, it's just you know, whatever they're trying to ride out here, you know, the risk reward is probably one to five against you. But um, it has been, it is setting up, in my opinion, as as a trade that should that should and could last for multiple years. Like I don't think you're going to be able to be long dollars again for until possibly until the next decade, whenever this thing runs its course. Mm-hmm. So our biggest position risk wise right now is short U.S. dollar, and we're short it. 
across the board. Like I don't have a specific instrument. I am sure I am long Aussie, Canadian, Japanese yen, Euro, um, uh, everything but the peso, because the peso I think has artificially been um, been pegged and and is being supported at ridiculous levels. But other than that, I think every single currency essentially in the world is is cheap relative to US dollars with the Japanese yen being the most ridiculous and the euro being right there the british pound of course being you know insane that that's probably our biggest position is british pound but um i i don't care you could throw a dart right now guy i don't care what it is mm-hmm. i think it it is the trade of the decade now that doesn't mean that this quote trade of the decade you know is going to happen anytime soon it may take another 3 months it may take another 6 months it may take another year but um, I feel about the U.S. dollar like I felt about bonds when they got to over, you know, 170, 175, 180 in that range. We're in the same spot right now in the U.S. dollar. We're hyperbolic. We're it's it's insane these price levels. It's not sustainable. And I don't care what fundamental argument anybody makes. This dollar, it's not going to crash. It's just going to go down for a long time, a long, long time. So I would submit, and I know again we are. We look at the world very similarly, but then we look at it very differently as well. So when you say that to me, I say to myself, okay, if Tom is right, he's going to be right because this Federal Reserve, our Federal Reserve is going to pivot, pause, stop, reverse, whatever term you want to use. Does that even come into your thought process or does it not even matter? Not it does not. I do not care what the Federal Reserve does. Not for one second. This has nothing to do with the. In, I mean, I'm just talking about myself. No, I understand. My my market call and my feelings about how I'm going to trade the U.S. dollar. Now, remember, there's two. There's a couple things about the dollar. One, I talked about the pot odds, meaning that I think there's one dollar in risk. You know, one dollar in potential the upside and five dollars to gain to the downside. But what's more interesting here is that you have crazy heightened implied volatility almost over 2x of what it normally is. So not only are you going to get a crazy move, you're going to get a crazy move with velocity, with magnitude. And at this point, I don't care what the Fed does. I don't care what the central bank does. I think they are they they'll they'll end up playing catch up and they'll 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 screw this thing up. They're going to f this thing up for the next couple of years. And whatever they do, it'll be too little too late. But this market will turn and the dollar will turn way before the Fed gets involved. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. Now, that's, again, you know, I say it all the time. This is not meant to be glib, but that's what makes markets. You know, you can have two people that have done it for a long time, look at the world through a very similar lens, and then you look at it through a much different lens. And that's why, you know, people say things are priced in, then a stock or a commodity or an instrument yeah. will move 15%. Well, clearly it wasn't priced in. And it's because People have that different way of looking at the world, and they put on positions based on that. And listen, we get to have you for 20 minutes once a week. The if you know the Tasty community gets you 24/7 every day. Let's put up the slide real quick. You should go to Tasty Trade, check it out. If you're looking for a trading community, I'm hard pressed to believe there's a better one out there. And these people are engaged. You know, obviously, when you when you're as passionate about something as Tom and the entire team is, you're going to find yourself a really good community. So Tom, obviously. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. I want to thank Carter, obviously, for joining us. Always great to hear CB dubs. Dan Nathan, playing hurt, as I mentioned. Want to thank our sponsors, Fact Set and Tasty Trade, and obviously our production partner, Open Exchange. Dan and I will be back tomorrow. Now, 
I don't know what happened in absentia yesterday. Apparently, Dan calls EY from SoFi, LY from SoFi, which is just dumb. And I would say it if you were here. But tomorrow we'll get back to normal, and it will be EY from SoFi joining us. We'll see you later, folks.